Serb Alpern, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, uh, noted uh, noted home for baseball analysis and stats, Fangraphs.com, the managing editor of that site, Dave Cameron. Uh, and in what follows, as he did for uh, all of 2011, or no, I should say all of 2012 as a guest on Fangraphs Audio, what what uh, what Dave Cameron does is he comes back in 2013. He comes back. It's a new year, but what uh, it, things are different. But one thing that's not different is the uh, extent to which Dave Cameron analyzes baseball, uh, which is to say he analyzes all of it. There are no uh, there are no shortcuts here, right? Uh, there um, there's no he doesn't he doesn't play games. Uh, he's not messing around. What Dave Cameron does is uh, he uh, he picks himself up by his bootstraps. Uh, which is uh, um, which some people regard as physically impossible. Um, uh, we have no uh, photographic evidence, I should say, of Dave Cameron doing that, but it's uh, he. It sounds like he's picking himself up by his bootstraps. And what he does is he goes in and he just analyzes all of baseball. Uh, for example, um, uh, uh, in this in this edition, he he discusses Lance Berkman. Uh, Lance Berkman is a, uh, a great uh, baseball player, has been uh, for much of his career. Uh, the Rangers just signed him to a deal that will be uh, guarantees him at least one year. Uh, guarantees, I should say, Lance Berkman, not Dave Cameron. Guarantees him a, one year and eleven million dollars. Uh, Dave Cameron suggests that maybe uh, this is a, a, an alternative to, uh, on the same level as, uh, at some uh, in some way, signing uh, Josh Hamilton, uh, noted uh, noted all other noted ball player, uh, younger though and perhaps more athletic. Well, certainly more athletic, uh, Josh Hamilton. So that's uh, that's a, that deserves some attention. Dave Cameron likes that move for the Texas Rangers. I, I go on to ask Dave Cameron. I say, uh, what is going on in center field there in Texas? We have Leonis Martin. We have Craig Gentry. Uh, are the Texas Rangers going to be satisfied with that combination? Uh, we look elsewhere in the uh, in the AL West, and uh, we look at the Los Angeles Angels of you know where. Uh, the Zips projections for the Angels came out on Monday. Mike Trout is projected uh, uh, to have a, uh, an eight-win season, eight wins above replacement, uh, an 8.0 war. Uh, now, of course, projection systems are typically rather conservative, so an eight-win projection uh, is pretty considerable. I say, uh, well, what's going to happen there with Los Angeles uh, versus Texas? That's going to be a competitive division. What else do we do? We look, uh, we look to the center of the country. We look to the middle of the country, the middle western portion of it uh, I ask uh, I ask for example about the oh the Cleveland Indians because Nick Nick Swisher signed with them a four-year deal and uh, Dave Cameron had been um, had been excited about the uh, the prospects of uh, for any team uh, signing Nick Swisher he, he thought that probably uh, any team signing him would get uh, something of a value on the dollar but you know what what I'm doing is basically here I'm recapitulating what you're about to hear so let's uh, let's stop doing this uh, part of the podcast and we'll move on to uh, to the main event, what we call the main event. Uh, this is a this is a um, conversation with Fangraphs.com's managing editor Dave Cameron uh, on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, and it begins right now. Yeah, of course. I always have to check the levels. Uh, the um, you've just put up a post though that I think uh, maybe merits some attention. At least I hope it does. Otherwise, why would you do it? 
Right. Well, you know, sometimes we just do throwaway posts, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so you think uh, – um, well, here's the thing. You've, you've um, suggested, even just uh, by means of the title of your post, that Lance Berkman might be um, some manner of replacement for Josh Hamilton. I believe a, a follower on Twitter um, – Commented only uh, or responded to that sentiment only by writing ha 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 ha. Uh, I don't know that I got a comment that said exactly that. Yeah. I saw a few people expressing skepticism because the idea of Lance Berkman appears to be that he's broken and old and useless. Um, you know why that is, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure because that doesn't really ring true. All right. So, so why you mean why people would think that? I mean, because uh, so. Yeah. So let me recap what I know about Lance Berkman over the last couple of years. I think yeah. that maybe it was two or three years ago now uh, he played for Houston and then and then was traded uh, to the Yankees and he looked he looked done then uh, and then he came back and he was uh, he was quite good with the Cardinals. Uh, yeah, I mean I don't even know that I agree that he looked done with the Yankees. He had a, a rough stretch for about a month in a very small sample. It didn't hit for a lot of power, um, but beyond that, I mean, he was still pretty decent. I mean, he was basically uh, didn't strike out, still drew his walk. He just, he just didn't hit for power for 100 plate appearances at age 34, and everyone decided that that was enough to write him off. Uh, he then went to St. Louis and proved that that was silly and was one of the best players in baseball. Right. Um, and then, and uh, I mean, certainly he has a track record. Uh, why, do, why would you think uh, people suppose that he's done – and and to what uh, to what degree is there merit to the to that argument or those arguments? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think that people believe that he's done because they simply refuse to believe that any kind of performance decline from an aging player can be due to anything other than aging. It seems to be that if you are a player in your mid to late thirties and you go through a slump, the um, conclusion is that this is your new performance level because you're getting old. It's impossible for people to consider that maybe old guys just have slumps, just like young guys or middle-aged guys. Um, so there's just this, uh, I don't know, confirmation bias, I guess, that we expect older players to get worse. So when we see an older guy performing worse, we overreact to it and believe it's it's a true talent level rather than just saying, hey, this is 100 plate appearances, this doesn't actually matter. And I, I think that if there was something else to lend credibility to it, or at least to, to color that perspective um, a little bit more, it's that Berkman does not have a great body. Like, so for example, um, when Mike Cameron uh, started breaking down, right, there, there was reason to believe that, that um, or maybe not breaking down, but uh, declining, that there was reason to believe that his decline uh, may, might take longer, whereas Lance Berkman has always looked a, a little bit puffy. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a reality to the idea of, like, DH-only, bat-only type guys. When they're not hitting, they look, and they kind of are useless. <laughs> like, they only do one thing, and when they're not doing that thing very well, you wonder why they're playing baseball, and it can be pretty easy to get frustrated with, you know, their lack of performance, because they're not doing anything else well. Like, at no point are they making a diving catch or stealing a base or making you think that they're providing any value to the team. Um, but I think, you know, we need to understand that, you know, there are guys who do this one thing really, really well. And, you know, it's kind of like a David Ortiz. You know, a couple of years ago he had that really terrible start in April. It was like 2009 where he struck out in half his plate appearances and everybody wrote him off. And since then he's been, you know, the third or fourth player in baseball. But he looked awful, even though he was, you know, 32, 33. There was no reason to think that he had just completely forgot how to hit a baseball. He struck out a lot. He was a DH. He didn't do anything else. 
and everybody jumped off the ship. It seems like for these type of players, um, there's a, a proneness to overreaction when they go into slumps. Okay, and so now the Rangers, uh, if I'm not mistaken, have given they've given Berkman is it 11 million dollars for for a year? We got 10 million for uh, 2013, and then we have a team option for 2014 that includes 1 million dollar buyout. So we've guaranteed 11 million. Um, it could be 110 or 220 or whatever the, the team option is. If they if you have a good year, they'll pick it up and they'll bring it back the next year. And what what role do we suppose he'll be fulfilling with them? He's going to be their DH. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was mostly DH against right-handers, especially if they end up not trading Mike Olt. Um, a, a Berkman old platoon seems to be something of a natural, given that uh, Berkman's never hit left-handed pitching all that well. And, you know, he'll probably he could use some days off as a 37-year-old and may want to get old some time in the lineup. And as a right-hander, you know, there's not any obvious spots for him. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked if Berkman ended up as a DH against right-handed pitching and got, you know, 450, 500 foot appearances. Okay, and, and we don't necessarily see, uh, expect him to be taking to the field uh, very often? There's no real reason to think that he's going to play the field very much. I mean, they, you know, they already have Mitch Moreland kind of penciled in at first base. Uh, if they decide they want to play Jerick and Profar at second base, then they would potentially slide Ian Kinsler to first base, which would even push Moreland out of the way. Um, so, you know, between Kinsler and Moreland, uh, I think one of those two will probably end up as their regular first baseman. Both are better defensively than Berkman would be. Um, so I don't think there's any real reason for Berkman to play the field, you know, except for maybe an interleague play if, uh, you know, there's a right-hander on the mound and they really want to get his bat in the lineup. Um, but even then, I'd expect that to be in infrequent use. Okay, so you, uh, the, again, the title of your piece is uh, uh, um, Lance Berkman, a cheaper Josh Hamilton, question mark. Um, I assume we're, we're talking about sort of an overall production because I can think of ways in which uh, Berkman and Hamilton are different. Um, Berkman's yeah. always always controlled the strike zone quite well, and maybe maybe his power has come and gone. Uh, whereas Josh Hamilton, it's almost uh, it's almost the opposite. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of overall skills, they're not very similar at all. I and mean, Hamilton, you know, derives some value from being able to run and play the field, and you know, he has terrible play discipline and a lot of power. Berkman's, you know, exactly the opposite as you noted. Um, but I think in terms of production for the Rangers, they're not going to be that different. And, you know, one of the things I lay out in the post is if the Rangers had re-signed Josh Hamilton, um, you know, he probably wasn't going to be a center fielder anymore. He, he's at the point in his career where he needs to move to a corner spot. They already have two pretty decent corner outfielders in, in Nelson Cruz and David Murphy. If they were going to keep all three of them uh, without playing Hamilton in center field or Murphy in center field where he's not really suited, um, one of those three was going to have to DH. And you, and you lose a decent amount of defensive value uh, when you stick a guy at DH and he doesn't play the field anymore. So if you're going to take a, you know, a, not a great defender, but a decent defender like Cruz or Murphy and move them to DH, Hamilton's extra defensive value isn't actually benefiting you that much because you're just um, getting some lost value from, from moving a good defender out of the field or at least a decent defender out of the field. So by going with a guy like Berkman who offers no defensive value but is a similar type of hitter and keeping those decent defenders in the field, the overall difference isn't going to be that large. Yeah, this is interesting, right? Is that uh, is that we on the one hand we speak of things in a vacuum, uh, you know, it's like is this player worth this much money? You know, looking at the market as a whole. Uh, but of course, you know, we've discussed previously um, on the podcast. You know, we've looked at uh, instances. I think probably the most notable one uh, was uh, involved the Detroit Tigers from last year with Prince Fielder, right? Where they, where in theory perhaps they overpaid, uh, but those. As you've noted, those marginal wins were more valuable to them uh, than they would have been to other teams. Um, is this a, is this a case where uh, Berkman 
uh, might make more sense for the Rangers than he would for other teams? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I mean, there are certainly teams that um, don't need a DH from every team in the National League, basically. Um, but there are also teams who probably can't afford to pay a decent chunk of change to a guy with Berkman's injury history um, because they don't have the depth to replace him if he goes down. And, you know, there could be a significant loss um, on those weeks or even months where he's on the disabled list. And if they threw 10 or 11, $12 million at a guy who's only going to play, you know, three quarters of the year, maybe even only half the year, uh, it wouldn't help them enough in order to, to represent uh, the value in order to make it worth it. The Rangers are not that team at all. The Rangers have a lot of pretty good players, uh, and they have a lot of guys who they don't necessarily have roster spots for. And, you know, Mike Holt could probably be a starter for a decent amount of teams in baseball, and right now he's projected as a, um, either back in AAA or, you know, a bench platoon guy who's going to play a couple times a week. If Berkman goes down and they have to play Mike Holt, that's not the end of the world. Or, you know, if they move Kinsler to first base, Mitch Moreland doesn't have a job. And Mitch Moreland is kind of a very poor man when it's Berkman and that he's a, you know, platoon guy from who hits right in the pitching okay. Um, he could step in and fill Berkman's role for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months if need be. So the Rangers have the ability to kind of absorb the blow of Berkman's lack of durability in a way that other organizations do not. Now, uh, here's a thing about which I'm curious and, and uh is you mentioned David Murphy, who looks like uh, will have a starting role this year. Um, you mentioned Nelson Cruz, who will be starting in, in right field, one assumes. Uh, center field, I think, is still a little bit of a question mark for uh, the Rangers, or, or maybe it's not. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, currently penciled in there uh, is a, a platoon of some sorts with Leonis Martin, uh, the, the Cuban emigre, uh, emigre, emigre uh, f- filling the strong side of that platoon, and then the very um, talented fielder, Craig Gentry, uh, taking over the weak side. Is that is that how you see it, and or, or do you see the Rangers trying still to improve that situation? Yeah, I, mean, I think right now, if the season started today, that's what they do. They would go into the season with a uh, platoon of, of uh, Martin and Gentry. And I wouldn't be shocked if that's what they end up doing. I also wouldn't be shocked if, you know, in a couple of weeks, Michael Bourne still doesn't have a job, and they look around and say, Michael Bourne is better than Leonis Martin and Craig Gentry. Let's give him a, you know, two- or three-year contract. It might not be what he was looking for, but it makes us better. It gives us a center fielder. It gives us another leadoff guy. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if Bourne ended up as a starting center fielder for the Texas Rangers and Martin became, you know, trade bait in their never-ending quest to find a right fielder uh, named Justin Upton. Uh, right, right. Is is that a thing that's happening? I mean, I mean, is that? Do you think that there's some inevitability to that? Or, or I mean, for, from what you know, that the Texas Rangers covet Justin Upton. I mean, it certainly seems that way. They've been trying to trade for him all winter. It's no secret. Um, I think that this move kind of points to the fact that they're not giving up on that idea. Uh, you know, obviously they have Delson Cruz penciled in as their right fielder, but I think if they could, you know, make a couple of moves or make some kind of three-way trade where. You know, they sent Cruz to a team who was looking for a guy on a one-year deal, one power, didn't want to give up nearly the, the prospect haul that it would take to get up to him. They could probably market Cruz as a, you know, much lower cost guy for a team with money to spend who was kind of looking for a short-term right fielder. Um, and if they could move Cruz out of the way, maybe flip Martin uh, in that same deal, getting a prospect back that would be more suitable to Arizona and package that prospect with Mike Olton, maybe, you know, like Cody Bukel or another pitching prospect all of a sudden they might have something that Arizona would be looking for. So I can still see scenarios where Justin Upton is the Rangers starting right fielder. 
Right. No, is there would it not be possible that that uh, the Rangers would just move Cruz over to left field and then uh, you know make David Murphy a well maybe a sometime center fielder slash you know bench player as, as he has been. It's possible, but I think David Murphy's a better player than Nelson Cruz, and I think benching Murphy uh, to get Cruz in the lineup when you're acquiring Justin Upton pushes that lineup back to being too right-handed. Uh, you know, part of the things they've done this winter for signing Berkman, signing A.J. Pierzynski, uh, you know, has tried to make their lineup a little bit more balanced. It's been too heavily right-handed, uh, you know, with Cruz and Beltre and Michael Young and Mike Napoli. I mean, they've leaned very heavily to the right side the last few years. It seems like they're trying to balance it out a little bit and get a little more left-handed. If they're going to bring in Justin Upton, I don't think they're also going to want to bench David Murphy in the process. Yeah, and I would like to say, uh, if the listener has heard a couple bumps in the last moment, it appears to be as though uh, my neighbors are violently shutting their doors. I don't know what uh, there is. Maybe there's an argument. That would be exciting. Right, or maybe you have burglars trying to break into your house. Uh, no, uh, we don't, but I, I did. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. Um, just before uh, sort of the winter break time, a, a very drunk uh, and large young man uh, rang our doorbell at 1.30 a.m., uh, the doorbell to the apartment uh Building in which I live, and then walked up to our apartment, uh, and I had to dissuade was his name him. Dane Perry? No, it wasn't Dane Perry, but it was a, it was a it was a large person who who in in the end was uh, ended up being courteous and drunk as well. Uh, but he started off just being drunk. Uh, anyway, just an aside. Yeah, that happens sometimes in a college town, I guess. Um, we've talked uh, here a little bit about the Rangers, uh, some some possible um, situations for them, uh, sort of uh, within that same division. Uh, we've uh, seen just this morning, uh, Monday morning, the uh, Zips projections for the Angels uh, uh, released at the site, and that appears to be a very strong team. I know this is not the way that Dan Zaborski likes to do it, but if you are at, to give a rough projection uh, um, based on their depth chart and the Zips projections, uh, a rough win projection, it looks promising, uh, maybe like something like 94, 95 wins, which is a lot, it seems, for a projection. Yeah, I mean, I think the so it's it's an interesting set of projections. Like uh, Zips has historically not been a big fan of Josh Hamilton, and that seems to continue a bit this year. Projecting for a 3.35 Wilbo, which is you know 50 points below his career average, um, and seems like a pretty big step backwards. Obviously, you have to take park effects into account, and I think it's OPS plus is still 126 or something. So it's not it doesn't hate Josh Hamilton, but it's expecting him to get quite a bit worse offensively. Um, but interestingly, it still projects him as a four-win player based on above-average defense. And so it's basically saying Hamilton is going to go from being an offensive monster with a little bit of a defensive liability to a good offensive player who's a you know above-average defender, which is kind of making him more like a Nick Fisher kind of player. And so you know, I think if the Angels end up with Josh Hamilton producing like Nick Fisher, they might be a little upset or you know disappointed at least, um, kind of in the way that Albert Pujols was a good but not great player for them last year. But all of that's wiped out by the fact that Mike Trout is still supposed to be the best player in baseball and has an eight-win projection by himself. And when you start with an eight-win center fielder or an eight-win left fielder in this case, um, it doesn't really matter much what anyone else does. Uh, as long as you have competent players around the field, you're going to be pretty good. And they really do, it seems, to have competent players. I mean, a number of a number of guys who are not uh, superstars per se, uh, but who are still above average relative to their position. I mean, I think Eric Ibar... Um, has never received a lot of attention, but he's, uh, I think he's projected for about three wins. Same with Howie Kendrick, who I think it was two years ago now, um, did have a bit of an offensive uh, breakout, but was more like his previous self. 
2012, but still it seems entirely competent. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you have Borges, who almost uh, – Peter Borges, almost entirely in the strength of his defense, is also projected as a three-win player. That's a strong team. Yeah, but I think the thing with the Angels, they don't have any glaring, obvious holes on offense. I mean, their, their offense is going to be one of the best in the league. Um, their defense should be above average, too, especially with Burgess and Trout in the outfield. Uh, their infield defense might not be spectacular, but their, their outfield defense is going to be pretty darn good. Uh, and they're going to hit. I think the real question with the Angels is kind of the health of their pitching staff. They don't have a lot of depth. And, you know, Jared Weaver spent some time on the DL last year. CJ Wilson had arm surgery at the end of the year. Um, you know, we, we kind of know that they're hanging their hats on some guys who might not be uh, the healthiest pitchers in the world. And, you know, if they have a couple of arm injuries and Jerome Williams and Garrett Richards are all of a sudden blogging 150, 200 innings, they can have some real problems. But, I mean, you can say that a lot about pretty much any team in baseball. Uh, arm injuries can wreck a season pretty fast. But I think the Angels are probably a little bit more vulnerable to that than most. Uh, a player about whom you were you were uh, particularly excited this offseason because I think that um... – I, I think you you believe that whatever he was paid, it, w- it would probably uh, be less than than he might ultimately be worth. Um, uh, it was Nick Swisher. Uh, Nick Swisher signed with the Indians. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that contract and if it ultimately if it sort of uh, um, made it clear, uh, you know, or, or if it made if it sort of ended up being what you thought it would be. He ended up getting a little bit less than I originally thought he would. Obviously, people still remember what, uh, when I wrote that I would give him a seven-year, $100 million contract a few months ago when it seemed like maybe the Yankees would try and re-sign him. The fact that the Yankees didn't try and re-sign him, you know, drove his price way down. Um, anytime you take the Yankees out of the bidding, it's going to have a deflationary effect on the player. Um, and, you know, I think Fisher was hurt a little bit by the fact that he had drastic compensation tied to him. So he ended up getting $56 million over four years from the Indians, uh, which on – Annual average value is pretty much right on. Uh, I think, you know, he's worth about $14, $15 million a year. Uh, it's a shorter deal than I would have expected, especially when you look at, you know, some of the contracts that have been signed by this kind of player in the past. You know, we did a comparison to him to Andre Ethier in September. He's clearly a better player than Ethier. He doesn't have the platoon problems. He's a switch hitter. Um, he's probably a better defender. He's, you know, been a little bit healthier than Ethier. Um, and Ethier got 585. So, you know, he's settled for $30 million less. Um, an easier did, but you know, one contract came from the Dodgers, the other came from the Indians. So, um, I think Swish is going to be a pretty nice value at that price. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether he's worth it to the Indians, who might not necessarily be contenders next year unless a lot of things go, go their way. So, you know, I, I think this deal would have made more sense for a team, um, you know, maybe a little closer to contention, but you know, I think it's a, a solid deal for the Indians, um, and Swisher should be worth the contract. Yeah, I mean, the Indians are a strange team, I guess, in that they have, uh, offensively, they have some interesting guys, I suppose, uh, or, you know, um, field players. Uh, and we did think at one point, perhaps, that their their starting rotation might be uh, interesting, especially uh, after they acquired Ubaldo Jimenez and Derek Lowe seemed like, even if he had a Derek Lowe-type season, that that rotation might end up being good, uh, if uh, maybe not necessarily excellent because the uh, there were questions about the infield defense. Um, but some of that sort of fell apart. They have acquired Brett Myers uh, in the meantime, um, but they still have question marks with Jimenez. I, I don't know. Is that uh, pitching staff going to be um, a problem maybe like this year like it was this past one? Yeah, I mean, Jimenez and Justin Masterson are, are clearly the keys to that whole franchise. I mean, a year ago, that looked like a pretty good one, too. Justin Masterson was coming off a great year. Jimenez, would, you know, looked to be 
uh, on his way down, but not terrible. Um, both of them were train wrecks last year. And, you know, uh, instead of getting, you know, eight to ten wins from those two pitchers, they got, I don't know, two or three or something. So that was a huge downfall of the 2012 Indians is sort of a ball movement as a Justin Masterson. With pitchers, you can never really be too sure what to expect. Um, but I do think, you know, we should expect both to probably improve unless they're just permanently injured. Um, but I don't know that either is going to be as, as good as we once thought they were. I mean, you know, you don't want to overreact to one year, but at the same time, both of them have significantly more information that um, perhaps they have some, some serious flaws in Jimenez's case. His health is a concern. In Masterson's case, his uh, platoon split issues reemerged. Um, you know, and because of his low arm slot, lefties are probably always going to hit him pretty well. So, you know, I think with Masterson and Jimenez at the front of your rotation, you you probably have some pitching question marks. They'd fit in better in the, the middle of your rotation if you were really trying to uh, win the World Series. Um, another thing I want to pick up on here is you mentioned uh, with regard to Swisher uh, that perhaps his um, his ability or inability to find a contract, say, on par with Andre Ethier, um, uh, it might have might have been tied to um, the compensation uh, picks that were that were attached to him as a free agent, um, based on the fact that he, uh, I guess, rejected a qualifying offer. Uh, you've written a couple times uh, over break or since last we spoke um, about qualifying offers and draft picks and and how this might uh, uh, change free agency to some degree, uh, how quali- qualifying offers might be treated in the future. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, there's no question the qualifying offer system is way better than the old Elias ratings, type A, type B. Um, you know, there were significantly fewer players who had compensation attached, so we saw some players who in previous years would have been uh, pariahs, you know, like maybe even a, a Mike Adams who got a, you know, a decent deal from the Phillies. Um, he probably would have been a type A based on his stats in previous years and might have had to accept arbitration and go back to Texas for one year. Uh, so for that class of like good relievers who aren't gonna earn, you know, Jonathan Pabelbon money, uh, the new system has helped them a lot. But I think at the same time, the restrictions on spending in the amateur level, um, especially as related to the loss of a pick equaling the loss of your bonus pool has made it, um, has made teams much more reluctant to give up that draft pick in order to sign a free agent this year. Uh, in previous years you'd just say, okay, well I'm punting the 17th or 23rd pick of the draft, but I'm going to take my second round pick and give them $3 million. I won't get quite as good of a player, but I'm going to get someone that I like who is probably worth more than a second round pick and kind of uh, make up for or at least offset some of the loss of that draft pick. Now, the fact that MLB takes your bonus money away and you basically can't overvalue, overpay for um, guys who slide in the draft, uh, the cost of losing a first round pick is more severe and teams that are um, much less willing to make that trade-off for guys like Kyle Loach or Nick Fisher or Raphael Soriano or Adam Roach, who are all still free agents and have draft pick compensation attached. So um, I think in the, in the main, first post I wrote, you know, I made some assumptions that turned out to not be true because it was all uh, restricted by the CBA. But I do think that the, at some point Major League Baseball or the Players Association could have to look at this and say, we have some perverse incentives here. Like, you know, it, it wouldn't be shocking if in July – every free agent to be who's not on a contender is angling very hard to be traded because it will significantly alter their market next winter. Um, I don't know that a player would necessarily act out in order to get himself traded, but I, I can see a lot of circumstances where free agents to be on teams who are out of the race are doing whatever they can without harming their own reputation at least 
to get themselves traded so that they can avoid draft pick compensation next year. And it's a little bit of a weird loophole to um, have a certain class of player uh, be unaffected by a draft pick compensation simply because they were traded in July. Like, I understand the idea behind the system, but it, it creates some incentives that probably aren't what baseball wants. Well, we see, I mean, we see this happen sometimes maybe at the lower levels. Uh, you know, for example, a player who's blocked at the major league level will, re- will request his release. Uh, you know, this is not a star sort of player or even a major league regular, but a guy who's in the minors will say, uh, we know, will you release me so that I can maybe uh, f- find something that's, um, you know, that, that would uh, perhaps a situation where I would not be blocked at the major league level. Uh, this is something a little bit different, though, I think. Uh, we're talking about bigger money and bigger performance, right? I mean, do you, do you see teams as uh, willing to make a trade solely because, uh, you know, a player maybe doesn't demand it necessarily, but because it would benefit him? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the interesting things here is that the incentives are not the same on both sides. So, like, the cost of signing a free agent went way up, but the, the value of losing a free agent went way down. Like, it used to be that Tampa Bay and Toronto and some of these teams would game the system, get a whole bunch of players, intentionally uh, collect guys in their walk years who they could offer arbitration to, knowing they would go get a better deal in free agency and they just collect a bunch of draft picks. Uh, MLB fixed that loophole, which is good, uh, but it, it means that there's no longer as, as strong of an incentive for teams to keep guys, make them the qualifying offer, uh, and let them walk. They're, they're only going to get one draft pick instead of two. The qualifying offer is a lot more than what most players used to make in arbitration. Um, and, you know, the, the compensation now comes at the end of the first round, so you don't have a chance of getting a 15, 16, 17, middle of the first round pick like you used to. Um, so for, for teams, there isn't as much incentive to keep them, uh, make a qualifying offer and try and get value that way. They're probably better off trading them for prospects in most situations, and the player is definitely better off being traded. So, you know, it's almost a win-win to uh, increase the amount of trades in, in midseason, and, you know, maybe Major League Baseball thinks that's a good thing. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest around the July trading deadline and maybe more trading activity, uh, you know, is something that they're in favor of. I just I do think it's a little strange that um, for a system that is supposed to be helping keep player, helping teams keep their players, this system is actually going to increase the uh, desire of, of everyone to make July trades in order to game the system. Yeah. Well, uh uh, one one thing I want to ask you about before we go, uh, uh, this uh, I was reminded when we were discussing the Indians, uh, their divisional foe, uh, the Kansas City Royals, uh, much maligned by fangraphs, so I think probably sometimes rightly, sometimes out of pure inertia uh, and habit, uh, they signed Miguel Tejada uh, to I believe what will end up being a 1.1 million dollar deal uh, after Tejada played. Well, here's the interesting thing and the question I want I want to ask you about Miguel Tejada at one point was a great player. Uh, yep. Yeah, he was a he was a talented and uh, offensively able shortstop, um, and that's a rare commodity. And he was an MVP winner. And I don't know. And he played uh, when he did play last year. He was a minor leaguer. Um, yep. And I'm curious if you remember, uh, just from your own experience, last you know whatever 20 25 years, if you remember a former MVP continuing to play. Uh, baseball when he was only be able to play in the minors um, like Miguel, like Miguel Tejada did last year. Of course, he at some point he did request his release and it was granted. But uh, uh, I, I, right. I, that was a, sort of a curiosity to me. Yeah, I know Ricky Anderson stuck around for a really long time. I mean, he basically played until no one would take him anymore. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know how many years he spent in the minors, but he spent a lot of years uh, kind of hanging around on benches at the end of the – and, you know, I think he took a couple minor league contracts to try and earn his way on teams in spring training, and he took some independent league ball. But, yeah, you don't often see, um, you know, guys who used to be great being willing to ride the buses. You know, last year I think Vladimir Guerrero had that, you know, two-week pseudo comeback with the Blue Jays. Uh, where he was in AAA, and then all of a sudden he, he wanted to be called up, and they weren't, didn't think he was ready to be called up, so that was the end of that. And he asked for his release, and it was all over. So, um, you know, I think there is certainly some kind of ego slash comfort factor where when you've reached a certain level of performance, the idea of, you know, 10-hour bus rides in the PCL is, is not so fun and, and not worth it for most of these guys. Right, and it should be noted, I, you know, I mean, Ricky Henderson was in his 40s when he was doing that too. Right. Uh, whereas yeah. Miguel Tejada is just, uh, I mean, he seems to be a player who very clearly had a peak. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, you know, he won the MVP in his age 28 season, which is, you know, when you, if you're going to win an MVP, you're probably most likely to do it 27, 28, 29. Um, and then he was good, and then he wasn't as good. Uh, but he, he appears uh, committed to uh, to playing Major League Baseball still. Well, I think he appears committed to trying. I don't think. He's- my guess is that uh, he's going to show up in spring training, and even the Royals are going to figure out that he's not very good anymore. I don't think he's actually going to make that team, uh, or I'd be surprised if he made that team. I think um, given what the Royals are trying to do, having a 39-year-old who can't really play anymore, uh, who offers little defensive value, um, pro- probably not the best fit for their team. Yeah. Uh, okay. Is there anything we've uh, ignored uh, uh, woefully that I should have uh, recognized? Well, we did talk about the Hall of Fame, but that was kind of nice because I, I have to admit we I am kind of tired of the Hall of Fame. I, I, yeah, and I should say I don't particularly care to talk about it. Uh, although I will say, uh, since having been uh, admitted um, to the BBWA, uh, I, I have paid a little bit more attention uh, to awards balloting, generally speaking, or the idea of it, uh, because it's something that uh, before said admission I uh, I thought was full of a lot of um, what do we say this. Um, a lot of sound and fury, um, but uh, ultimately... Hullabaloo, maybe. What's that? Hullabaloo? Yeah, there was definitely some, some hullabaloo present. Uh, but it has uh, it's maybe occurred to me, I think maybe having some influence over it, or the idea of potentially having some influence over it has maybe uh, uh, engaged my senses more fully so far as that's concerned. I know you you released your, your Hall of Fame uh, ballot, or your, one, your theoretical Hall of Fame ballot, and uh, um, you seem to be... Uh, I think you, you, you voted for 10 guys, or more than 10 guys, if you could. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, like, I am, I, I agree with everybody that this is a mess, and it's, uh, you know, the process is significantly broken, and if we were going to design a Hall of Fame voting process from scratch, this is not what we would come up with. Um, but I think that there's some obvious flaws that are more fixable than others. Uh, the 10-player limit is, I think, the, the most obvious flaw that is easily fixed. They just, you know, print more lines on the ballot. That's, you know, a super easy fix that lets people vote for 12, 15, 20 guys if they want. Uh, there's no reason, you know, Jason Stark released his ballot today and said that he had to choose Sammy Sosa over Andrew Martinez, who he voted for before and who he believes should be in the Hall of Fame because he wants to keep Sosa on the ballot in order to have a chance to vote for him in the future. So he's kicking off a guy he believes should be in the Hall of Fame in order to vote for a guy who he's not sure should be in the Hall of Fame, but he wants more time to consider and doesn't want Sosa to fall off the ballot. That's the, I, I mean, that's just insane. <laughs> and that, that shows how the whole, whole process needs a, a revamp. Um, at the same time, I'm not one of you who's completely convinced that uh, people who aren't voting for guys, you know, who use steroids or, or almost certainly use some kind of performance-enhancing drugs 
are off their rocker and we should just take all the ropes away. I think it's a complex issue and, you know, so, um, I, I've tended to stay out of the, uh, you know, right or wrong casting stones kind of, uh, side of the debate, but I do think that there's things like the 10 player limit that, you know, we should talk about, we should point at and say this should stop. This deserves some change. Yeah, uh, it is, uh, of course, it is full of complexity. I, I think that um, that is the easiest thing to say. There is a lot There is a, um, a lot of hand-wringing concerning it, uh, yeah. a lot of opinions. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I think one of the things that I don't like about the Hall of Fame uh, system as it's set up now is so much of it is focused on pointing out the flaws of some of the best players who ever lived. I mean, you know, besides the super inner circle guys who just, sail through. Right. The rest of the guys who hang out on the ballot, most of the time is spent talking about what they can't do, not what they actually could do well or or highlighting their successes. And we end up, you know, spending ten to fifteen years denigrating guys like Jack Morris who, you know, shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I'm totally on board with that idea. But you know, Jack Morris didn't have a career that should end with fifteen years of mockery, right? Like I, I wish that we had a system in place that was more about trying to figure out uh, was this guy good enough rather than um, was this guy bad enough that we should uh, scorn him publicly every winter uh, until he dies? <laughs> or, or I guess until he's off the, until he's off the ballot. Is this, is right, this... but even then you have the Veterans Committee. and I mean, it seems like for these guys who are bubble candidates, I mean, you know, like uh, as a guy, you know, I didn't get to see Jim Rice play, uh, from talking to people, it sounds like Jim Rice was a lot of fun to watch. All I know is that a lot of people hate Jim Rice because Jim Rice is in the Hall of Fame. He doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. That's not the legacy that Jim Rice deserves, right? Right. Yeah, it's a, you're right. It's almost uh, it's almost to a player's detriment if he played uh, just good enough to be considered for the Hall of Fame. Um, right. I mean, I don't know if it's – detriment might be a strong word. I just I think it's a little sad that uh, so much of the process is focused on – um, denigrating players who, you know, maybe they were the 15th best player of their generation instead of the 12th best player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that still means they were pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it is difficult. And uh, there's some name-calling. Uh, there's some name-calling that goes on uh, during this. I don't I don't like to see it. I I want everyone to be happy, Dave Cameron. Right. Yeah. Live and let live is the Stooley motto. Yeah, it's, uh, well, look, uh, look handsome, I think, is number one. Oh, do you have a brother who's living up to that? Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Cameron. Uh, we uh, the dates for our Arizona trip are settled, and that's going to be fun. We can uh, yeah, really, it should be really cool each time. other in person. Right. If uh, it's always fun to get together with people who uh, love staring at spreadsheets and mm-hmm. then taking those spreadsheets to the game. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, I would say it is nice uh, being able to sit with people who. At least use this, uh, I guess, some similar vocabulary when discussing the sport and have similar concerns. That is actually nice. Yeah, no, I think the Arizona trip yeah. is always uh, is always a good time. Right, and uh, of course, uh, people people may or may not know. Last year, I think uh, we, uh, Bradley Woodrum was seated next to you for for at least one or two of those games, and was also uh, frequently in your car receiving a ride. And then you, and then that's another thing too. Yes, that is a thing. I think my favorite part of spring training last year though was watching a ball. Uh, ricochet off your hands. It didn't. Uh, did not go well. Yeah. 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 Um, but I don't think it was entirely unathletic. They, they, um, sit, we were sitting in, along the left field line, and the ball did have quite a bit of spin. 
Yeah, it, it, it's very tough to catch a baseball coming directly at you. It was, yeah, um, you, you're phrasing it in such a way. Well, here we see uh, how a, a, a writer's biases are revealed instantly. Uh, yeah, I would say that it was uh, it was a tough catch. Uh, it was not my best effort. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I'm also not ashamed. Right. Uh, you did get the ball, didn't you? I ultimately did. I it might have involved fighting off uh, a woman and or child for it, but uh, you know, in this life, you have to make some sacrifices to your right. dignity. Uh, yeah. I think you know the uh, to the what it, to the the victim goes the spoils or something. I'm butchering that quote, but there's some some quote about. Uh, spoils and victors. Yeah, victors. Yeah, right. Well, uh, history is written by the victors. I know that. Uh, unless it's Wikipedia. Right. Um, I'm sure there's someone named Victor who's responsible for writing something <laughs> on that. Um, Probably. Yeah. All right. Let's. Uh, this is. Uh, it's going downhill, but uh, it's been a good uh, so far. Uh, we'll say. I'll say thank you to Dave Cameron for analyzing all baseball once again. That's what I do. All right. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.